Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Ezra Klein Show. My guest this week is Arlie Hochschild. That is very exciting for me. I've been reading Arlie Hochschild for, I think, over a decade now. She's a phenomenal sociologist, did a lot of pioneering work around time and work and gender equity in both the workplace and the home. But she has just released a new book called Strangers in Their Own Land, which is a bit of a departure for her. She went and spent five years embedded with more or less Tea Party Republicans in Louisiana when she began the work on the idea that Donald Trump would be running for president and would be a serious candidate would have been laughable. But her effort and her project ended up being a really tremendous way to understand what has become an increasingly large gulf in America's political values. It's an incredible, not just undertaking in terms of the work she put into it and how deep her immersion research went, but also an incredible undertaking in terms of the empathy that went into it and the good heartedness. It is a very refreshing way to think about American politics at a time when there are very few things that will make you feel hopeful. One of the things that made this conversation great is that my way of absorbing and thinking about politics tends to be very literal. Is this policy better than the other one? Is this candidate better than the other one? And and Dr. Hochschild really does a lot of work on how these things feel to people, the subjective dimension of politics, which I think is oftentimes probably more important. So it's very fascinating to get this kind of perspective on our political divide at this moment in an election year. Before we go to the discussion, as always, I have a couple quick requests for you. Please listen to my other show, The Weeds, where I talk policy with Matt Iglesias and Sarah Cliff. Please rate this show on iTunes and share it with your friends. Share it on email, on Facebook, on Twitter, wherever fine shares are had. You can always email me at EzraKleinShow at Vox.com with guest ideas, feedback, whatever it might be. Without further ado, here is Arlie Hochschild. Really, thank you for being here. It's a, a real pleasure to talk to you. I've been reading your books for years now, and I was so excited when this oh, one came good. on my desk and so excited when this worked out. Oh, good. Good, good, good. But uh, uh, I'd love to begin with where the project began. How, what question led to you undertaking this effort? Well, five years ago, I was already sensing that left and right were uh, polarizing, and each side was uh, uh, kind of hardening positions, and there was acrimony. Five years ago already, Congress was frozen in place, and there were rumors flying that Barack Obama was uh, not an American. The American president wasn't American. The great distrust. And I realized that many of the things that I believed should be available to Americans in one of the richest nations in the world, like parental leave, for example, uh, for newer adoptive parents, things like that, Head Start, 
for all eligible kids weren't going to happen unless we backed up and healed this big rift. I felt like I was in an enclave. I think most Americans are. And it puts us into a kind of a schizophrenia. On the one hand, we're seeing a lot of public conflict. If you turn on the television or you look at your Facebook, there's just a lot of conflict, political conflict. But when you turn to your partner or your best friend or your neighbor, you're agreeing with them. So it's a kind of a schizophrenia. And I think what we have to do, all of us actually, is um, try and climb out of our enclave and reach a hand out to the other side and really get to know them respectfully. So that was the beginning of my five-year adventure into the land of the right. And and you didn't come to this as a, an, a as an experiment. You've done this sort of immersion sociology before. And so before we jump into to what you did here, I'd love to hear a bit about what are the tools of your work. Uh, when you approach a project like this, when you approach this question of leaving your comfort zone, of trying to understand people who live and think in a different way than you, what do you bring to it that is different from someone who maybe hasn't had your training and hasn't had your experience, but could have the same idea? Yes. I think the main thing that I bring to it is um, a desire to take off my own alarm system. That is to really set aside my own uh, beliefs and where I came from and really take as my challenge and joy and task leaping over what I call an empathy wall to really stand in the shoes of the other person. It's actually a wonderful thing to do. You have enormous differences with this other person, but you really get how they got where they are and respect it. And then you can look for crossover issues on on which, you know, you could cooperate. And I think there are a lot of them. We'll probably get to that. That's the thing I think that's it's the training to take off your alarm system, to don't go in saying, well, I'm gonna convince these people that I'm right. That's that's not the purpose. Your purpose is to learn. Give me a sense of how you would do that. If 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 it were me, if you were trying to understand where I sit, and, and I was someone who you felt yeah. there was a gulf with. When you yeah. approached that conversation the first time, when, when, when we met and you wanted to persuade me to open up to you, but you also, uh-huh. I assume, wanted it to feel not like some kind of interrogation, what Absolutely. kinds of questions would yeah. you ask me? Uh, what is your well, approach? Let me give you an example. Yeah, I was at a meeting in Lake Charles, Louisiana, which was as far from Berkeley, California, as I could get on the political dial. And I was at a meeting of Republican women of Southwest Louisiana. And across the table was a very bright, warm woman, gospel singer in the Pentecostal church. Her husband was a a minister there. And she said, uh, I love Rush Limbaugh you know, the conservative radio commentator. Well, you know, that doesn't accord with my experience. But I said to her, you know, I think I have something to learn. Could we make a date? Could I talk with you? And then I explained who I was. You know, I'm a retired professor from UC Berkeley. I teach sociology, and I've been concerned about this 
rift between left and right, and I'm, I've come here to try and see if I can understand what I think a lot of people don't. And she said, sure. They were all very friendly and outgoing. So we had a meeting, and I said, well, tell me about Rush Limbaugh. Why do you like him? And her answer was, well, he really gives it to these feminists. He calls them feminazis. And he really hates environmentalists. He calls them environmental wackos. And I think that's really putting them, you know, in their place. And it makes me feel good. I like that. I, she even said, I follow the Rush doctrine. So I was writing things down and reflecting on that. And she said, was that hard for you to hear? And I I felt approached humanly. And I said, actually, it's not hard for me to hear. It's not what I agree with, but it's very easy for me to hear what you're saying because that's my purpose of being here. I've, I've got something to learn, and you're teaching me. And she said then two things. She said, you know, I do that too sometimes, right? She can turn her alarm system off, she was saying. And so now we had that in common, right? We could each really reach out and listen. And I felt a human bond with her. And then she said, you know what I really like about Rush Limbaugh is that he defends people like me from mainstream liberal culture, because a lot of people out there think that if you live in the South, you must be uneducated and backward and that you're homophobic and sexist and racist and that you are um, an unworthy person. So I learned a lot in that five minutes that she felt seen and denigrated and that Rush Limbaugh was defending her against that denigration. So anyway, that's an example of how I would approach such a person and how quickly the chemistry can change if you, if you do approach a person in that way. I'm fascinated by the metaphor of turning off your alarm system because mm -hmm. I've spent a lot of time reading about the ways in which our minds and our bodies work when we come mm -hmm. into contact with ideas we find threatening or offensive. And, right. and people can feel it. You go, just go right now and read an op-ed that, that you, of somebody who you really disagree with and who won't treat your ideas with much respect or gentleness. And you'll mm -hmm. feel it. You'll feel your skin get a little bit hot. You'll feel your stomach tighten up. And, and rationally, you will be looking for holes. You'll be reading it critically in a way that you will not mm -hmm. be looking for every trip in logic and every mistake and every unblocked path when you're reading a column by somebody who agrees with you. So mm -hmm. when I, I assume that, and I guess I don't know for sure, but I assume that you are a human like the rest of us and not uh, a pure creature <laughs> created in the sociology lab. Oh, and how do you approach that ability to turn off your alarm system? How do you make it a more pleasant task to hear things that as that woman said, you know, in, in, an, in another context, it'd be hard to hear. Well, I think the first thing is to be completely honest about who you are and what your purpose is. 
they understand, the person you're talking to understands that you're not there to convince them of something. You're there to really learn and get the hang of and the feel of life as it as it is for them. We all do that. If you're talking to a child, if you're talking to an elderly person, if you're talking to a person in another language, if you're talking across difference, you're likely to be doing that. In other words, the very function of talk is different. Normally, when you talk, you talk to convince, to convey information and to tell another person where you stand and who you are. So the function of of talk really changes when you take off your alarm system. It's really to absorb and learn. It's an exciting thing to do. I think you have to have a certain orientation to that kind of talk. In other words, when I set out to do the research for strangers in their own land, some people said, why are you going to do that? As if we were at war and I was crossing the lines and giving aid to the enemy. It was an orientation that taking your alarm system off is disarming, quote, your side. Well, you know, I had to just say back, no, if you want to compare it to anything, it's a diplomatic mission. It's, well, look, we can work this out. Uh, let's see what the basis of that could be. We are all American. So others were just would say, oh, I don't know how you can do that. You know, they're going to say these distasteful things. I would urge more curiosity. I have not had a more interesting and I would even have to say fun experience doing research. I've now done nine books than this. And I think it's uh, it's because of the relationships that they permitted me to establish. And it's not just I that's reaching out. They reached out back to me. And we, each knowing that the other had fundamental beliefs that were very different. Before getting into what you learned in these conversations and what the beliefs are, I want to talk about one more dimension of what you were attempting to accomplish, because I've actually been thinking about it a lot. So my, my background is I'm a policy writer. And so the way I tend to interact with American politics is trying to decide if something is, in my view, given the research I can find and the information I can find, right or wrong, good or bad, right? Is this policy better than another? Will this tax plan add up? And you talk about how you were going and what you were interested in. You, you gave this quote to my colleague, Brad Plumer, that what I'm really interested in is understanding how people feel, that I'm not focusing pragmatically on policies, but trying to get into what it would feel like to be a person with that set of experiences. And I was thinking a lot about how that's a different axis of American politics. So we, we tend to talk a lot about the right and wrong, right? And sometimes probably trying to frame subjective views, views that maybe emerge from values that are not really open to argumentation as objective questions of fact and efficiency. But what you've done here is frame frame it completely differently, that it almost, in, in this work, it didn't matter who is right or wrong. It didn't matter if the stories and the views you were being told were backed up by evidence, that they were experientially true to people, and as such, they were really influencing how people engage with American politics. And thus, it had to be dealt with correctly. Is that 
uh, what I did was first go in and interview 40 members of the Tea Party or supporters of the Tea Party in rural Louisiana. And I interviewed them repeated times, and I asked them, could you show me where you were born and where your school was? Where did you sit in first or second grade? Were you in the front row? Were you in the back? Could we visit the church you went to? Where are your parents buried? Often quite close by where they, they are. They are really people of, of location. They love their communities, feel attached to them, and talked about a range of things. We did things together. They would show me where their children went to school. We would go fishing together, go to a fish fry, go to the gumbo cook-off. And after a while of doing this, and I interviewed 60 people altogether in the five years, so 40 really Tea Party supporters and now Trump supporters, and 20 people who could help me understand the 40s, so 60 altogether, 4,600 pages of transcribed interviews. So I, I did a lot of listening. But the second thing I did was, on the basis of what I learned, to propose a metaphoric deep story, I call it. And that's really the basis of this, of the approach in Strangers in Their Own Land. The deep story is a story that's stripped of judgments, stripped of facts. It's the story as it feels, as it feels to be true. It's the story that feels to be true. And we all have deep stories. But the deep story for the right, I then went back to them and asked, is this how you feel? And they said, yes, or they modified it. They would add something to it. But the deep story was this. You're standing in line that's uh, going uphill, a little like a pilgrimage, the top of which is the American dream. And you've been waiting patiently for a long time, and the, the line actually isn't moving. And then you see someone ahead of you beginning to cut in line. Who would that be? That might be an affirmative action uh, black or affirmative action woman who would like a job not available to women, a male kind of job, and a black looking for a job that always been held by whites. Then you see immigrants that have had very difficult experiences, or you see refugees cutting ahead. And then in this deep story, story as it feels to be true, you see Barack Obama waving to the line cutters. Oh, he's their president. He's helping them, but he's not helping me. He's not my president. And so you get the feeling that the president, all he stands for, the federal government, is pushing you back in line uh, for something you, you've worked extremely hard for and feel you deserve. And then you see someone ahead of you kind of turning back and saying, oh, you Southerner, you, you racist, you, you redneck. And this is insulting and 
insult to injury. And then there comes a moment where you feel this isn't even your country. You are a stranger in your own land. And you look for alternatives. You look to be heard, to be recognized, and you don't see you don't see it. I think this is the setup for Donald Trump. And I did four years of research uh, with these people that I was really getting to know and befriending. And then last March, I went to the rally for the primary in Louisiana, where Trump gave a speech. And I felt I've been studying the kindling, and now I see the match. So the deep story is the main point. It is what it has been called the objective correlative to how people feel. Mine is an emotions-based approach, and it's different from other approaches in that focus. And it isn't just the right that has emotions, of course. The left does, too. We all do. And we all have deep stories. But I think what we need to do is get a conversation going, deep story to deep story, with some empathy for that of those who differ from you. So I think what is so interesting about the deep story you tell for, for Trump supporters, and and it feels true to me. It feels true to the emails I get. It feels true to the people I interview. It feels true to, to the things I've seen on the campaign trail this year. And on the other hand, what is tough about it is it is a very depressing story. And, and, and this is where I'm curious about how your approach, how you see your approach aligning with approaches that have to make the trade-offs of a final policy recommendation, right? Because, I mean, when you're talking about will we do X or will we do Y or should you vote for X or should you vote for Y, ultimately these stories, and as you say, there are many of them, they have to resolve down into a judgment about what is true and what is not. Your argument that, that people feel deeply disadvantaged, I think, is is very true. But then it also runs up into this question of, well, have they been deeply disadvantaged? Mm-hmm. This idea that mm-hmm. all these African-Americans and Hispanics mm. and immigrants are cutting some kind of great line in America is very mm. hard to square with the history mm-hmm. of this country. It is very hard to square. People talk all the time about how Trumpism, Trumpism is motivated by economic anxiety. But objectively, African-American and, and Hispanics have done economically worse in, in recent decades if, if you just look at sort of where their absolute levels are and to some degree where their growth levels are. You do not see a story that quite would back up. If it's all economic anxiety, they should be supporting Trump too. And and, and so where does that mm-hmm. leave you? How do you think about these things when they're in tension? Well, what you're saying is the deep story subtracts facts as well as judgments. And that that's a problem if, if a deep story doesn't accord with facts. And the facts that you mention partly don't accord and partly do. We're looking at older white men. That's kind of the core group for Trump supporters and Tea Party supporters. So big differences in a lot of beliefs between those two groups. But at the moment, Tea Party is is leaning and planning to vote Trump. What to do with the fact that the deep story doesn't accord with the real hard knocks that blacks have had and immigrants have had and refugees have had. 
Well, I, I think that's what has to be talked about. But the way to talk about it, I mean, I don't have any easy, slick solutions here. I mean, we we do differ on what the, the facts are. But what I would say is the way to talk about it is through acknowledging deep stories and through crossing the empathy bridge and also kind of looking at the facts they do have on their side. And this is why I, the subtitle of my book is Anger and Mourning on the American Right. The mourning is in response to felt losses, which some of which are real and don't have an easy policy fix. They are increasingly demographically on the decline, for example. What are you going to do about that? And they feel that being religious people, that there's a growth of secularism and that being a devout believer is less respected. Well, there's a, that's a long-term trend. They also feel marginalized for their cultural attitudes, that they are pro-family, pro-life, and the law of the land has not supported them in those two beliefs. I don't think there are any quick fixes with regard to these sources of estrangement in their deep story. But if we're going to talk about them, we have to talk about them, again, respectfully. And I think economically, they have been affected, especially older men who've run into age discrimination. And while they aren't on the unemployment lines, most of the right-leaning people I came to know, they tell me that in so many words, that the difficult uh, lives they saw blacks lead could hit them too. In other words, globalization and the offshoring of plants and the high automation of plants, the imports of foreign labor, these trends hit blacks first, and now it's the whites' turns. So that isn't fantasy. I think that's true. They have a point. One of the places that leaves you, though, which I think is a very interesting space in our politics right now, is that we are trying to mediate between what people say their grievances are and what we mm-hmm. believe their grievances to be. And I, and I think there's something you did here, but I think it's something that we hear really all the time now where somebody says, I want fewer immigrants to come into this country. I'm afraid of them bringing crime. I'm afraid of them putting pressure on jobs. I'm afraid of the role that they are having in changing our culture. I I thought it was in some ways a tremendously telling moment when recently, I think it was a Trump surrogate said, if you don't elect Donald Trump, there will be a taco truck on every street corner. And this got roundly Mm -hmm. mocked, but Mm -hmm. I I actually think it speaks to a, a quite deep cultural anxiety. But the, the difficulty here, I think, is a difficulty in the difference between empathy and respect that mm. I think a lot of mm-hmm. people are trying to treat Trump supporters with empathy. And what they do there is that they try to align using a sort of double bank shot uh, the grievances of Trump supporters. What, what with, do you mean double bank shot? Sorry, it's a, a 
given that I don't play pool, there's no good reason for me to be using trick <laughs> pool terms. They, they try to either. align in a, in a somewhat complicated process the grievances being expressed by Trump supporters with the mm-hmm. sorts of grievances they think are legitimate. And so you have a lot mm-hmm. of this transmuting people's racial anxiety into an economic anxiety, right? The the, the sort of joking mm-hmm. way people talk about this is no matter what the grievance is, liberals always want to offer the supporter a tax cut, right? The, the, as if everything can be solved mm-hmm. with a middle class tax cut. And so that's the, there's this effort to create empathy by aligning and, and saying, well, the well, right look, these, wants that too. Right, the right wants that too. Although for a different uh, for a different class, I think. Mm-hmm. But then there's an mm-hmm. issue of respect, and the, I think in some ways a more respectful way to take these grievances is to take them on their own terms. To say, nope, you you understand what it is you don't like. You are upset about the idea of a taco truck in every corner. This is not an economic grievance that has somehow wormed its way into into a cultural grievance, which has somehow then been expressed in a quasi-bigoted dimension, that you you have a view about what is the ideal level of racial and ethnic diversity in this country, and it is lower than where we are going. And Mm -hmm. in order to respect that, it needs to be taken as the thing itself. And this feels to me like a place people are, are really having trouble. And it's a, it's a place I was thinking about a lot throughout your book, that the, the work of empathy to some degree is a work of reading ourselves into others. And the work of respect is sometimes the work of taking others at their word and not trying to read ourselves into them. Where, where do you, how do you well, think about navigating that territory? I see it differently. I think empathy becomes the primary basis of respect. In other words, empathy, you're not giving up your knowledge or your beliefs about what's good. It's simply reaching out to the experience of the other person. And once you've done that, you can have a respectful discussion of your differences. Empathy doesn't alter who you are or your knowledge perceptions. It enlarges the ground on which two or more people can stand. So I don't see the one as enemies of the other. Can can I push you on this just a little bit to sharpen the uh, point just for a moment? The the reason I I put them in opposition, and and I I recognize uh, you're very much right that I think in most times these things are not in opposition, but is when you get to the point where taking somebody's position seriously makes empathy for that position harder. And I think that's where people are trying to do this double move, where it's very hard for people who have a very deep commitment to diversity and pluralism to mm-hmm. respectfully engage with the idea that we just shouldn't, we should just have much less of those things. Well, if you've crossed over the empathy bridge, you can begin to look at the facts on which each position is based in a different spirit. Appendix 3, the last appendix in Strangers in Their Own Land, is a fact check. And I begin by saying, you know, often when uh, I was interviewing people, I felt as if we were living in a different truth. And, uh, you know, I had to check myself what the facts were. And so my research assistant and I, it's all carefully footnoted, took a number of issues. For example, in my conversations, I 
often heard people say, oh, so many people work for the federal government. I think 40% of uh, Americans or 30% of Americans work for government, you know, too many public employees. Well, I looked it up. It was 1.9% work for the federal government. If you add in state employees and local county employees, and this includes teachers in public schools and nurses in uh, public hospitals, and you add in the active military, it came altogether to 16%. So that's uh, a long ways from 40. And, you know, we can look at that and understand how, you know, a perception can be exaggerated. But I also looked, for example, at um, birth rates of black and white women. It's often said, well, you know, so many black women have a lot of children so they can stay on welfare well or have have more children. And these were often whites who came from very large families. Actually, the birth rate for black and white women is the same. So just some fact checks that have to be looked at, not in the spirit of ammunition, but the spirit of just uh, where are we, the spirit in which you do your fact checks is hugely important. That is the point of my book. We've got to get into a different spirit of difference and then look for crossover issues. And you would be surprised the number that I discovered. One man, for example, just on crossover issues, kind of said, well, we uh, ought to get money out of politics, both sides. I thought, wow, great. Yeah. Let's let's do. <laughs> I didn't realize that was something on which we could really agree. So I've always been fascinated coming at things from the, the policy perspective, how positive some policy is, how much people actually agree on. This is true when you poll them, but it's also true when you when you talk with them. I've never covered a policy process that even at the elite level early on when you got experts on both sides into a room, people couldn't see a way to make things better. Uh, for both mm -hmm. sides than where the status quo was. And as you say, it's not just money in politics. I mean, if you look at Americans' opinions on taxation, if you look at their opinions on foreign mm -hmm. policy, there's actually a lot of overlap, much more so than you would imagine from the bitterness and the division of our politics. That's and the right, the environment. I've, and the conclusion mm -hmm. I've come to is that while policy and issues are often positive some, Elections and political and politically relevant identities are often quite zero-sum to people. And mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. we are often having a conversation about the latter, about elections and political identity, disguised as the former, about a, a discussion mm -hmm. of policy. And that, that, mm -hmm. that feels to me like a place where American politics truly breaks down. Because what right. both sides are very good at when they get into a fight is mm -hmm. taking something where there could have been with the right kind of leadership, potentially agreement, where there could have been right. with the right kind of leadership, people saying, hey, maybe that is better for me too, even though it's being proposed by a president from the party that I don't belong to, but that we then That's activate right. people's identities around it. I don't want to overstate the case here because there's quite a bit in Obamacare that Republicans had every right to be unsupportive of and, and frustrated by. But the individual mandate has always felt to me like a very interesting moment in this because it really was an idea that emerged on the Republican side. It really was an idea that was part of the Republican alternative to the Bill Clinton uh, and Hillary Clinton health care bill in 1994. And it really was an idea that Republicans were supportive of 
as recently as 2009. But by the time you got to the end and it had become about identities of liberal, conservative and Republican and Democratic and who would win the next election. Right. By then, it became something Republicans thought was not just a bad idea, but literally unconstitutional. Uh, and and to me, that's, that's right. the answer I don't know how to the, – the problem in politics I don't know how to solve. And I don't even see much hope for solving. You say identity, and I say deep story on which that identity is based. It's as if these policy issues that you're engaging were wrapped in a a bubble, a kind of a negative defensive bubble that is uh, defending a deep story, you know, without understanding what the other guy's deep story is. And I think what we need to do is take these policy issues out of the bubble and talk about them in detail as they would affect personal lives. And as you're saying, you'd find quite a lot of crossover. I mean, it's interesting that what's happened in this political moment is uh, not that the left has become more left, but that the right has become more right. And if we look at Republican leaders of the 50s and 60s, they have what seemed today like quite liberal positions. For example, Barry Goldwater ran as a Republican candidate for president in 1968, and his wife, Peggy, was a founder of Planned Parenthood. And now Republican candidates want to get rid of Planned Parenthood. Dwight D. Eisenhower was very strong in building up the infrastructure, roads, buildings, the public realm. And uh, today, the Republicans are saying, no, that's a waste of money. And in the past, uh, Richard Nixon uh, in the 70s gave us the Environmental Protection Agency, the Clean Water Act, the Clean Air Act, and now many Tea Party Republican candidates want to get rid of the EPA and uh, deregulate polluting industries. So, yeah, there's been a move right um, politically. In context of all this, I'm, I'm, and I, I try not to ask too much about current events on the show, but I'm, I'm very curious what you thought when you heard about Hillary Clinton's comment that roughly half of Trump supporters are part of this basket of deplorables. Mm. I was both horrified and saddened. She later walked that statement back mm -hmm. and uh, said, I didn't mean to say half, and I'm sorry I did. Many supporters have, have real grievances. But the fact that she did say it, of course, is uh, being picked up as a lack of empathy, <laughs> a lack of getting into that deep story. And it would be great for her to come down to Lake Charles, Louisiana, or Bayou Corn, Sinkhole, Louisiana, or Deritter, Louisiana, or Longville, Louisiana, where I met a lot of wonderful right-wing wing people. I'd love to take Hillary around and meet some people. I think she wouldn't call them deplorable at all. She'd call them very fine Americans, but who have very different views that and haven't been engaged in the kind of dialogue you and I are talking about. Something that, that you talk about in the book and, and that you've talked about subsequently, which I think relates to that comment, is 
the multifaceted nature of of not just people's opinions but their identities. And mm. and I think that one of the tricky things about Basket of Deplorables is that she took people's ideas and turned them into their identities. And mm-hmm. uh, it, it seems to me, and you can you can tell me if I'm wrong, but that some of your work here is trying to understand how people who, not in all cases, but in some cases, hold opinions that you might think are are quite wrong or quite damaging in their lives and, and in their totality and the way they treat others, much more gentle and generous and, and humane than the sort of faraway stereotype might offer. But how do you how do you think about it? And, and in a separate way, how would you have told Clinton to, to manage the question of how do you describe people whose views might, and I'm not saying it's 50% of Trump supporters, but there are some Trump supporters whose views on some of these issues genuinely are noxious. Mm-hmm. I get a tremendous amount of anti-Semitic hate mail from Trump supporters. How do you wow. talk about that real, that very real phenomenon without losing hold of your empathy? Mm. Well, this calls for for real skill that's very important for all of us to develop. I think when Hillary is talking about noxious people and deplorables, she's thinking of David Duke, once a grand wizard who defended lynching. And she's thinking of how Donald Trump responded to David Duke. At first he said, oh, I don't know who he is. And then when pushed, finally said, oh, I disavow David Duke, okay? I disavow, okay? In other words, he communicated a reluctance to separate himself from David Duke. But I think it is Duke that she has in mind when she's thinking of deplorables. I I guess just to get back to the pathway forward, it is not to use the word deplorable. It is to positively affirm the good angels of that are real, each to the other side, and get down to respecting one another and then talking about particular policies that we could agree on, but taking seriously what the real threats for the right wing have been. There's something there real that they have responded to. I think the they have lost confidence in the economy. They think that the liberals really stand for those who are the beneficiaries of uh, the new face of globalization. You know, the highly educated that can take advantage of, of jobs and speak many languages and a kind of cosmopolitan elite and that they have been left behind. The paradox, of course, is there are many progressive policies that speak to that issue. For example, in Vermont, which has the highest proportion of people being graduating from high school, is lowest proportion of people going on to further education. So what they're doing is proposing to pay for the students to go on if they're in technical colleges or community colleges and really get them to jobs that are available. These are the kinds of things I think we can agree on, but we just have to stop spitting at each other. 
In terms of that very real threat you're talking about, you, you said something uh, to my colleague, and, and, and you certainly write about it at length in the book that I thought was very interesting. And, and you talk about how for some of the white men that you met and that you worked with, they felt at the cross current of, on the one hand, a societal belief that white men are privileged and are dominant in the society and their own very real experience that they clearly were not privileged and are not dominant right. in the society, that, that their ideas, right. that their life is perhaps looked down upon by cultural elites mm -hmm. and that That's certainly right. their bank account does not reflect any mm -hmm. deep dominance of, of the American economy. Mm -hmm. And so that, that, mm -hmm. that the privilege of whiteness and maleness was something that they were on the one hand expected to atone for, perhaps yes. through things like affirmative action, but on the other hand, mm -hmm. something that they did not feel they were benefiting from. Never trickled down space, to them in the first place. Right. Mm -hmm. And that in that space, there was quite a lot of resentment that could grow. And, and, yes. and I'm curious what you think should be done about that might be too facile, but but how do you think about that? It is, a, I think, a very difficult thing where we tend to talk in these large generalities about large groups of people in this country. And I, on the one hand, I do think it's empirically true that whiteness and maleness has been a has been an advantage. And on the other hand, it's also true that not everybody who is white and male has had it easy. And these mm -hmm. things, as people negotiate the the averages, end up in many cases being very frustrating for those whose experiences are not well described. Mm -hmm. The problem here is the great silence in America about social class. You know, not all white men are created equal. Some are rich and some are poor. Some have are born in homes with a lot of uh, books in the living room and summer vacations where they get time to read them. And some are born with no books and they're working are from uh, the first age they can, with uh, you know no inclination or no no opportunity to read. So, just taking an example of that, and America, you know, has really got a a blind eye on class, and this is what this is about. And we have to to look at some of the recent studies, and I cite one in strangers in their own land, for blue-collar white men, they were very similar to upper white-collar white men in 1960. Both upper and lower class were likely to get married, to go to church, to volunteer for the community, to uh, spend time with their children. But in 2010, the upper stratum, the top third in income and education, were still pretty much like they were back in the early period. But white, blue-collar men, the bottom third in income and education, looked very different. They're more likely to be not living with the mother of their children, not involved in their children. They didn't go to church, didn't volunteer for the community. They were more depressed. Actually, Charles Murray, who's written a book comparing whites of different classes, and has uh, concluded, well, 
There were two things that uh, blue-collar white men uh, do more than they did three decades back, and that's to sleep and watch TV. And he then concludes, oh, well, that's because they have lost their morals. I think, from my emotions perspective here, they've lost their morale. They're depressed. Hmm. Uh, They don't see a future. And we've got to... We've got to grok that. Um, And uh, that's why, again, I put anger and mourning on the American right. And white men see kind of a bleak future ahead of them. They don't think globalization is good for them. And they're right about that. So Hillary Clinton, instead of putting down people as uh, irredeemables, needs to be getting together some economic policies that really appeal to the high school educated blue collar white man. You talked a lot about the ways in which maybe white men are, are are less advantaged, but one thing that's in this moment than they have been at others. But one thing that I think is changing is, and particularly in Hillary Clinton's campaign, is an increasing focus on some of the problems that women have had that have been central to them, but not central to American politics. And particularly, because you mentioned some of these policies early in our discussion, things like paid parental leave, shift scheduling, Mm -hmm. sick days, et cetera. We Mm -hmm. seem to be opening up a debate about a politics of time and who controls that time, you or your employer, you, your employer mm. or the government, what are you able to take from that time? Um, what happens when you do take some of that time to raise a family and then come back to the workforce? I think that, to a large extent, is what the equal pay for equal work debate is about. Mm-hmm. I, I'm curious if you see this as something that is genuinely changing or a sort of epiphenomenon that comes back and forth in politics and, and is going to have a bit of sound and fury but signify little. There is a politics of time, and if we turn away from that issue, we're going to put great pressures on families, and the right cares about the family, uh, wants a strong family. The left cares about the family, wants a strong family. So this would be a, a basic crossover issue of the family-friendly workplace and giving workers more flexibility and time to be with their young children, but just time in general. I'll give you an example of a man I met who grew up on a sugar plantation. The book begins with my description of that plantation and his showing me around. And so he grew up in the Old South. This is a white man of 63. And He had his entire adulthood in the New South, that is to say, Louisiana oil-related jobs. And his last place of work, where he worked for a very long time, for the first five years, he was given one week off a year, sick time and vacation time together. So if he got a cold, he had no vacation for five years. And the next five years, he got two weeks off. So if he had a cold, he had one week the entire year. So that's a decade of life with almost no vacation. The man loved nature. He loved to go fishing. He couldn't get the time to go out and do it. And he was a white male. So how privileged was that? With regard to time, very unprivileged. 
and he didn't get a raise for the last 10 years either. 20. Time is an issue for both sides, and it's a great crossover issue. Crossover. You think that both sides yeah. will take it on, though, for all that supporting families and, and, and parents is a core part of conservative ideology. There has been much more reticence to interfere in contracts between employers and employees that might not be conducive to raising a family. There is a measure before Congress now for state-of-the-art care for four-year-olds to sort of, it would be a high investment issue. But remember that women on the right are generally poor, generally need to work. Every woman that I interviewed was working for pay and up against some difficult conflicts. And they may talk about the stay-at-home mom, but they aren't stay-at-home moms. They can't be. In fact, they're more up against this kind of time pressure than a lot of uh, liberal women are who have higher income. So I don't think we've even begun the conversation we could have to get up some measures that would bring relief to working parents. Yeah, I think that I think that is very true. Let me ask you a question. We traditionally used to close out this podcast and these conversations. What are our three books on these topics or or others that that you would recommend to the audience that have influenced you or have mattered to you and that you think people should read? Well, let's see. One would be Robert Kuttner, K-U-T-T-N-E-R, Everything for Sale. And it's a really a discussion of the growth of the market and the increasing power of corporations. It really explains how corporations with globalization can move around the world and they've undercut unions and they've undercut governments. Governments are now on bended knee competing for corporations to uh, put down roots on their soil. So the whole power dynamic between these large multinationals and national governments has been increasingly altered. And I think that's the lay of the land that's led to the rise of the new right, that there's feeling, whoa, we better adapt to that, that it's going to be scary now. And we can't, governments can't protect us. And we've got to do what the corporations want. I think it's one response to the new face of globalization that Kuttner really lays out in a way I found persuasive. I guess I also have learned from George Lakoff's Metaphors We Live By. I was inspired by that to, to in a way, look at what the underlying metaphor was that accounted for and in a way described the feelings, evoked the feelings. What has to be true to evoke the feelings people feel? That's what the deep story is. And it's really inspired by metaphor and the premise that we do think and feel. Well, he says, think. I extend that to feeling. 
in stories and metaphors that extend into stories. So I found a lot of um, use in that. I'm I'm not sure on the third. Let me demure on that. Fair enough. Well, this has been yeah. wonderful. Arlie Hochschild, thank you very much. I uh, really appreciate spending the time. The book is Strangers in Their Own Land. Uh, it's fantastic. I am reading it. You should read it. And thank you for being on the show. Thank you. Thank you to Arlie Hochschild for taking the time. Uh, her book really is great. I really do recommend it. Give it a shot if you haven't. Thank you to my producer, AC Valdez. The Ezra Klein Show is a production of Vox.com, which you should all be reading, and Panoply. And I'll see you next week. <laughs>